Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome all to the 36th episode of the Lovable Podcast. This week's episode is a dare. A dare to do away with all the conflicting and confusing goals you have in your relationships and to replace them all with one goal. One dare, one challenge that can simplify and beautify every relationship you have. You're going to love this episode for months, maybe years to come. But first, let's make sure you've got a copy of my free ebook about marriage. It's called The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. It argues that the most rebellious thing you can do in this world is to get married and live that marriage the way it was intended to be lived. Uh, So get it. Go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. You can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll get the ebook right away. Um, and, uh, and if you do sign up for that email list, you'll, each week you'll get my one Wednesday email with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. Um, also, um, I'm making some big progress on the comprehensive study guide for Lovable this week. My kids are off at camp, um, so I have a little more space than usual and making good headway on that. So news about that will be coming soon. Make sure you're signed up for that mailing list so you can, uh, can get the first word about the study guide. And last but not least, when you sign up, you'll also get a free sample of Lovable. But of course, if you want more than just that sample, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. Or you can go wherever you like to buy books. It's available in paperback, digital, and audio. So check it out wherever you like to shop. Um, I think that is it. On to this week's episode, a challenge that could change your life. Thanks for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 35 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled The Kindness Challenge. Today, we're going to talk about how to take our instinct for competition, which is usually divisive, and turn it on its head so it connects us in increasingly powerful and life-changing ways. Before we get into this week's topic, though, let's check in. Last week, we focused on straightening out our priorities in our relationships by focusing on our mortality, by grieving the loss of our people ahead of time. It was a rich, rich discussion, and I wanted to check in with you to see if that discussion or that idea uh, produced any fruit in your life. And of course, as always, and especially today, feel free to share whatever is feeling most helpful to you so far in this year of listening, loving, and living. And so why do I say especially today? Well, because this is the last week in the months of loving, of focusing on belonging. Beginning next week, we will transition into the months of living, and we'll be focusing on cultivating our passions and our sense of purpose in life. So this is a great time to share what has felt most important to you in these months of loving. And while you're thinking about what you want to say, uh, whether it be about last week or about any point in these uh, months of belonging, I thought I'd share with you a little bit about my experience of practicing last week's exercise. Um, So came away, came away from last week's episode with just a real salient sense of 
um, uh, of my, <laughs> my mortality and the mortality of the people around me. What that translated into for me uh, was Wednesday night last week, a very vivid dream, a very realistic dream actually, in which my wife had died. Um, and I was left with the three kids and, uh, it was, it was startling in its, again, in its realism, like most dreams sort of have these bizarre disconnections and things that don't make sense rationally. But this dream was just exactly the way that it would go. And I woke up Thursday morning, uh, and it was, it was as if I'd gone through the reality. Um, and what I discovered over the rest of the week I didn't know what, obviously I didn't know what, how that would impact me, but what I discovered was this intense sort of attention and gratitude for the sensory experiences of my people, you know? Um, my kids laughing, my kids fighting, um, dinner table conversation, the hugging them, the touch, the smell, those things that, you know, won't be there forever. And it made me think, uh, of a blog post that I wrote uh, almost a little more than a year ago, actually. And so I thought I'd read that today to sort of put a put a bookend on last week's exercise. Um, and while you're thinking about what you want to say, I'll go ahead and read that and then scroll back to pick up your, your comments. So it's entitled, What I Will Miss When They Are Gone. They sent me home to get the music. On a Friday afternoon in June, we were celebrating the 90th birthday of my wife's grandfather. He remains a healthy and vibrant man, a gift to all who have known him. As he eases into his tenth decade, he quietly laments that this may be his last year of gardening. His party was a true celebration of life. Yet the celebration was missing something. Music. So I was sent home to pick up my portable speaker, a 30-minute round trip to ponder this man who cared for his granddaughter, the woman I loved so much, at a time in her childhood when no other man was around to do so. I'm a words guy, and I like to memorialize such moments with a toast. 30 minutes to ponder what I wanted to say about my kid's great-grandfather. And I blinked. I couldn't think of anything I wanted to say about him. It was disconcerting. For a moment, I even began to question the sincerity of my affection for him. But then I got still, and I simply listened. Then, eventually, this voice of grace. You don't want to toast him. You want to hug him. When his days are, are done, you will, in a way, still be able to speak to him. But once his days are done, you will no longer be able to hold him. His soul is as young as it ever was, and as young as it will ever be, but this heartbeat of a body is nearly over. This blink of an eye substance will vanish. This fleeting, fickle physicality will be finished. Soon, you won't be able to feel the weight of him in your arms. You won't be able to hear him call you Flanagan and feel him pull you in close for one more joke from his bottomless supply. Soon, he will fill the world with his spirit, but his reading chair will be empty. I just wanted to hug him. It made me think about my wife and my children and my family and my friends. Someday they too will be gone from me or I will be gone from them. Either way, I will miss them. And more than anything, I will miss their materiality. I will miss the flesh and blood stuff, the stuff you can only sense with a body, the stuff of light and sound and odor and mass. I will miss the sensation of my wife's toes finding mine under the covers in the darkness. I will miss the feel of my daughter's fingers as they find mine in a busy parking lot. I will miss the cool metallic smell of my son's hair as the sun dives early beneath the horizon on a crisp, clear autumn afternoon. I will miss the steely strength in my other son's eyes when he knows he's right and I'm wrong. It's not just spirit. It has a color, a shape, a shimmer, and I will miss all of it. I will miss the beautiful stuff you can touch, taste, smell, hear, and feel, and I will miss the ugly stuff too. I will miss boogers wiped in out-of-the-way places. I will miss cuts that bleed and scrapes that make showers miserable for a day or two. 
I will miss the messes my kids make and hopefully the messes my grandkids will make. Someday my body will be gone from theirs or theirs from mine and I will miss it all. For too long I have thought of the body as a cage, an imperfect deteriorating container in which our souls restlessly pace, longing to finally be set free. I confess I failed to see atoms and cells and tissues and organs and bodies for the gift that they are. I thought the body was the hiding place of the divine. Now I wonder if it is the completion of the divine, the culmination. Souls can feel joy, but only bodies can laugh. Souls can feel sorrow, but only bodies can weep. Souls can feel love, but only bodies can make it. Only bodies can hug. Only bodies can hold each other. Only bodies can snuggle during bedtime books. Only bodies can tickle each other. Only bodies can play in the pool in a strange aroma of chlorine, sweat, and sunblock. Only bodies can splash in puddles together. Only bodies can agree upon the best pizza place in town. Only bodies can feel the air cool, listen to Sinatra on the portable speaker, watch great-grandkids hide and seek each other in the gloaming. Only bodies. That's what I will miss, the flesh and blood gift. That's what I'll miss about my wife's grandfather when he's gone. And that's what I'll miss about all of us. So that is where I wound up practicing last week's exercise. Um, and I'm aware that if I don't sort of continue to practice it in an ongoing way, um, that awareness and that straightening out of prior, my priorities will get all twisted up again and tangled. They won't be straightened out again anymore. So something that I want to continue to practice as I continue to move out of these months of belonging. And um, I hope that each of us will consider that as well. Sonali writes, so true. When my grandma passed away, I realized I won't ever be able to touch her again. One can have videos and photos. You can see them. You can hear their voices. But the touch is not there anymore. Hmm. You know what's interesting? He said, "Just it's it, we are blessed with the technology to record some some of those sensory experiences with our people, aren't we? I just told my son, we took him out for his eighth grade graduation gift on Sunday night. And uh, I confessed to him that uh, I hope he never changes his outgoing voicemail on his iPhone. We, we gave him his iPhone probably a little too early, beginning of seventh grade, but it was before his voice really started to change. And that outgoing message, I call it sometimes just to hear him <laughs> as a seventh grader. And... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a blessing, the technology we have to record those moments, but the touch, the touch, the physical, you know, the, the holding, and that was the la the title of last week's episode was let's hold each other like we're dying. Um, boy, it makes you appreciate the touch. Heather writes, funny you mention a dream. I woke up this morning with a dream so vivid it was startling. It wasn't about death, but about an ending, about a relationship being disposable and the feeling the loss of the person who treated the relationship as disposable. Wow. That reminds me, Heather, of this idea that we sort of keep secrets from ourselves. And uh, dreams are sort of a way of telling ourselves secrets. You know, the things that we sort of push to the edges of our consciousness during the day. Well, when we're not on guard and doing all that pushing at night, our brains continue to work and our minds and our souls share share those secrets with ourselves. And um, it sounds like that's one of those sort of painful secrets that you shared with yourself last night and uh, got to experience in its fullness. And um, that can be painful. Um, but I also, I believe deeply that operating within, within the truth, within reality can always be redemptive. Um, and I hope that's the case for you. 
Sabrina writes, both of my grandparents passed in less than a th oh, less than a three month span. They were married for 67 years. I sat in the ICU with my grandma on her deathbed, feeling so cold and still feel as though her passing isn't real. I feel like I'm still in shock. Nowadays, I try not to think about her too much because it hurts me, but when I don't, I feel like I'm disrespecting her and her memory. I wish there were better ways for me to deal with their losses. Um, wow. Sabrina, we, we spent some time talking about this last week, about how really the only way to deal with a loss is to go through the process of, of grief. Um, and that one of the important things to do, we get worried that surrendering to, so grief entails denial. I don't want to think about it. Anger. Um, I'm angry that it happened or is happening. Um, bargaining. Is there any way to avoid this happening? Can I turn back time? Usually there's an anxiety to that. And then, um, and then sorrow and that our resistance to the sorrow part of grieving can keep us sort of stuck in the grieving process. But if we can surrender to that sorrow and find creative ways to surrender to it, and that might be what you're asking for with, you know, how can I creatively just enter into the sorrow of this loss? Um, then we find ourselves moving, continuing to move into the last stage of grieving, which is actually acceptance and peace. So um, I think that's, that's my encouragement to you and to everybody listening who's finding themselves sort of feeling stuck in their grieving is this is really about finding creative ways to enter into and be present to our sorrow um, so that we can begin to move through it. Because if we keep resisting it, we'll, we'll keep cycling back through denial, anger, and bargaining. And that is a very unpleasant cycling. So um, sorrow is the doorway to the rest of it. Ali writes, I never knew how much those little physical touches I took for granted meant to my soul until they were gone. I pray this comes back to heart because it warms the heart. Mm. And that is, I mean, that's so, that's so normal, right, Ali, that um, we, we start to grieve the loss um, afterwards. It's just, we just, we just don't know what we, <laughs> it's a cliche, we don't know what we got till it's gone. And, and, and really this practice from last week is about moving that grieving up so that we can truly appreciate, enter into full gratitude for those things, even while we have them. Um, and that, that somehow this is the strange gift of being human, that we can project ahead, know it's going to happen eventually, contemplate it, and let it enrich what's happening now. Um, so, I, Ali, I hope, that, I hope it does come back to you at the same time. Um, I know that practicing this exercise um, will will enrich what's what's happening for you already right now. Marie writes, had an unusual experience sitting with a client in a setting where I get to listen with some level of healthy detachment even while being with them in their journey. While I typically have empathy in someone's pain, with this person I had tears and sadness and naming her pain with young adult children leaving the nest. Grieving the mortality and feeling another's pain caught me by surprise, but fortunately I think my emotion freed her to acknowledge her previously unrecognized sadness and even shed her own tears. Could not agree with you more, Marie. Um, I was trained as a therapist to be pretty detached and emotionless, um, and I've I've learned over over the years that it's it's okay for me to show emotion at appropriate times. Um, it gives the other person person I'm working with permission to feel emotion, um, and it sounds like the emotion that you showed there, the, the the real deep true empathy, gave her permission to to feel that as well. And I do think, I do think having adult children leaving the nest is a form of loss 
it's a form, I mean, we have to grieve that. Um, I was just talking with somebody this week. My kids are away at camp this week, and I'm just loving the, the free space, right? They're having fun off at camp, and I'm enjoying the heck out of this time. But when, you know, five, six, seven years from now, when they leave for college, and that departure is more permanent, am I going to be super? No, I'm going to be grieving a loss. Um, and so it is important to, to acknowledge that um, those losses are happening all the time, not just with death, but with transitions in life, new stages, growing up, there's always something being lost behind. And so we can constantly be tuning into that layer of life and appreciating all of it more because of that attention. Sabrina writes, thank you, I really appreciate your input. I still see my grandma in my dreams sometimes. It's like she's visiting me. It gives me comfort. I know she is at peace. Some days I sit near her grave and just weep and ask God why. I will spend the rest of today going through your last posts. Wow, 67 years is such a beautiful thing. Um, such a beautiful, a, a beautiful life and a beautiful relationship that was lived. Um, I, I suspect that as you continue to move through your sorrow, that's sort of the zip code you will end up in with sort of a reverence for the beauty of what, of, of the life that she lived an appreciation for that, uh, inspiration to, to live your life in the same way. Um, but it does require moving through that sorrow. So good for you for being committed to it. Lynn writes, my mom passed away last month at 93 mm, after a difficult 10 years of dementia and various physical issues. It was a very challenging and difficult period for me. Oh, her only child, I bet. Living so close to her death for so long. It has changed my perspective permanently. Wow, Lynn. Um, I know caring for someone with dementia is one of the most emotionally trying things anyone can do. And to do it as an only child where you don't have a ton of additional support in that can be... Um, Wow, that's that's difficult. But it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that you surrendered to it, you were present to it, and you allowed it to shape you and transform you. And to me, that's one of the ways that losses get redeemed. Um, if we're constantly resisting them, angry about them, wishing that they hadn't happened, um, then the loss itself doesn't get to work its way into us and shape who we are. Um, and transform us going forward. That surrender to it is what allows it to be redeemed. Um, and it, it sounds to me like you're, you're letting that redemption happen. Good for you. Shelley writes, my grandparents and mom have all passed and I find myself cycling back through the grief as my boys hit certain milestones. It can be overwhelming at times. I desire long for them to be here so that we can share these milestones. And that is totally, Shelley, that's a, that's a sign that you're actually grieving well. Um, that it cycles back, that milestones would stir it up, that anniversaries would stir it up, um, that you're allowing yourself to feel it again when it comes up is a sign that you are surrendering to the sorrow of it. Um, and it feels cyclical. It feels cyclical, I imagine, because you are surrendering, you are moving through the sorrow once again and back into a place of acceptance and peace. So um, it sounds like you're, you're doing everything as well as you can um, and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with feeling it over and over again. That's, that's, that means you're paying attention. Shelley writes, thank you, Kelly. Some days I wonder if this is the way it is supposed to look. The books all tell us to go through these stages, yet I seldom hear from others that it is okay to feel sorrow again. I believe it is just the condition of having loved. And that's beautiful, Shelley. You have a great way of putting things. Yeah, that's, I think that's something that we all want to remember. They call them stages, but they're not linear um, and they are cyclical. 
Um, so you might discover that one day you wake up in denial, the next day in bargaining, next day anger, maybe sorrow, maybe, and then you experience peace for a little bit, then the sorrow is back. Um, so they are not linear. They're not steps necessarily. They're just different stages and we bounce back and forth. And it's totally normal to discover that you're cycling back to a previous stage. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's make sure everybody listening knows that, that that is totally normal. Sonali writes, my grandma passed away in 2015. Except for the initial days, I didn't feel sad. I sort of feel I should have felt more grief. She was very kind and loving, but she had a very d difficult decline in health for years. And in a sense, her passing away relieved her of her suffering. But I still wonder why I don't feel more about her passing. Um, boy, Sonali, you're not alone in that. Um, there are... I talk to people every day who find themselves sort of beating themselves up for not feeling more intense sorrow um, about the passing. Or here's one, and this is this I think illustrates, and it might get at it for you. Um, for instance, someone who comes in and says, my grandfather passed away six months ago, and I felt some sadness, but my dog passed away this past week, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wreck, it wrecked me. Isn't that wrong <laughs> that I feel more sorrow for my dog's passing? than my grandfather's, and eventually when you work through that with someone, what you discover is that grief is highly correlated with the amount of day-to-day -day contact we had with somebody um, or something. Um, so in other words, if, if you had a grandparent who you didn't see often, lived far away, or just didn't have much contact with, um, versus an, a pet who is there all the time, um, and whose absence constantly reminds you of their absence, um, then your grief is going to be uh, more intense. And so your grief is really connected to how much, um, how many reminders you have of that lost attachment. Um, and so uh, not unusual at all to discover that sometimes you have relatives that, that the grief isn't super intense for, and it's usually connected to the fact that you, you didn't have a ton of day-to-day -day contact with them, so there's not the constant reminder of the loss. It's totally normal, and it's nothing to feel bad about. Heather writes, My father passed over 20 years ago, and I still grieve, especially when I now look at my grown sons and how much he missed and how much they are so like him. You know, Heather, that... I wondered if spending a week contemplating my mortality and loss would increase my fear about death, you know, because you're, you're thinking about death all the time. And <laughs> if there was a fear that was increased, it wasn't my fear of death, it was my fear of missing out on this life. Um, my sense that my, my priorities distract me from what's most important and I only have, I only have one, one consciousness to bring to life. I can only pay attention to one thing at a time and I'm constantly making choices and those choices lead to me missing out on the things I value the most. Um, and so when you say that, when you say, wow, um, he missed out and that's where the sadness is, I, I think in hindsight, that's where the, the grief is for all of us. It's not about, it's not necessarily about the death itself, but the missing out of the life that we, we had. And so that's the, that's the hope here, um, is that we would not one day find ourselves in that position of feeling like we've missed out, but that we're actually paying attention um, and so we grieve that on behalf of other people who are missing out on the things that we wish we were, they were here for, and that's totally normal and totally okay.
Trius writes, my dad's diagnosis means his mortality has been front and center for three years now. I wrote him a letter for Father's Day addressing our differences in religious beliefs and God's purpose and plan for each of us. I wanted him to know that despite our differences, I had little doubt that the love and respect we have for one another will be carried within us. I really felt it imperative to express his importance and influence in my life. Trius, that's a beautiful, what a beautiful gift to give to him. As a dad, I know that with my kids, we're going to have those inevitable differences. And the idea that they would come to me one day and say, yeah, we had differences in the way we thought, what we believed, um, but your heart was true. Um, and mine is too. And um, there's just a beautiful gift of grace. So thank you for sharing that, Trieste. All right. Thanks again, everyone, for really another rich discussion. And the, the fact that clearly we could continue to discuss this means that this discussion about grief that that we tend to, to, to avoid typically is one that we're all wanting to have and needing to have. Um, and so let's pay attention to that in ourselves and, uh, and let's think about ways we can continue to cultivate this conversation outside of the podcast with the people that we belong to. Um, and, uh, and use that as, again, another, another sort of uh, marker for belonging. Do I feel like I can discuss death and grief with someone? <laughs> um, if I can do that, I probably belong to them. So um, let's keep that in mind. And let's transition now into this week's topic and reading an exercise. Um, in a way, it's an extension of last week's exercise in the sense that it's about simplifying our priorities and expanding our sense of belonging to include more people, maybe even all people. So let's get into it now, week 35 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is called the Kindness Challenge. We're at the kitchen table, my wife, youngest son, daughter, and I, and we're playing Go Fish. The game is quickly becoming too competitive. My son is hiding cards underneath the table. I'm pretty sure my daughter is sneaking cards from the pile, and heated words are starting to fly. Most of them are not, most of them are not for me. I'm tempted to end the game. Instead, I announce we're changing the goal of the game. We're going to keep a tally of kindness during the game, and regardless of who has the most cards at the end, the winner will be the one who has shown the most generosity and gentleness. At first, the kids look at me like I'm crazy. Then it changes everything. My son asks me if I have an eight. He has an odd, gleeful glimmer in his eye. And as I start to reach for my eight, he stops me. He pulls a card from his hand, an eight, and he gives it to me. Suddenly, I have more cards, but we all have smiles on our faces. It quickly devolves into the weirdest card game I've ever seen. By the end, it's not clear who has the most cards because we've been trying to give them all away and we've been too busy laughing to keep track. But one thing is clear. Joy happened. A week after the Go Fish game that devolved, or perhaps evolved, from competition to kindness, it's an unusually warm December day and I'm sitting along the river walk in the town where I work, on a bench, still, face turned toward the slanting rays of the afternoon sun. It's a Saturday and the river walk is busy. Pedestrians walk by me. They're all dressed impeccably, classy, hair glimmering, the scent of aftershave and perfume is everywhere. They're almost invariably fit, strong, everything is in place. They are clearly winning at this competition called life, and not a single one of them looks at me. Admittedly, I must look a little crazy. Blue jeans, frayed hat, dirty tennis shoes, sitting still staring at the sun. I try to make eye contact, but as they approach, they suddenly become very interested in the ground. There are no exceptions, until there is. She's young, and she doesn't look like the rest. She looks a little untethered. She's wearing black clothes and black eyeliner. She's flirting with a goth persona, but she's still not all the way there. She's a little bit on the fringe of everything, including herself. And she's not interested in the ground. 
Our eyes meet and hers soften, and before I can get a word out, she says, hi. I hear something in her voice that breaks my heart. It's relief that someone saw her. I feel it too, and there's relief in my voice as well as I smile back and say hi. Two people competing at kindness and ending up in a tie. Another week later, and I'm in a Target store cranking out Christmas shopping. Anonymous shoppers push past me, bump into me, and reach past me for the last set of Legos on the shelf. It's like I'm an invisible player in a highly competitive game of consumer go-fish. I'd like to suggest we change the rules, but no one would be listening, which is when I sneeze. And from an aisle over, someone calls, bless you. Those two words are long and drawn out, not well articulated. They sound wet and nasally and were clearly said through a speech impediment. When I hear it, I remember the group of young people I'd seen earlier in the store, a collection of physically and intellectually disabled children brought to the store by several guides to complete their own Christmas shopping. In a store full of people competing for the best presents and the best life, they aren't competing at the game the rest of us are playing because their DNA has disqualified them from the contest. So they play a different game altogether, a game called kindness. And in a Target store, finally, I decide it's the only game I want to play. I look around the corner and I say thank you. Let's admit it, we're obsessed with winning. Just look around, everything has become a competition. Our will to win is everywhere, and it's not going anywhere. But what if we gave it something better to do? What if we all decided to compete at a game called kindness? Two little kids at a card table, a teenage girl on a river walk, and a disabled kid in a Target store have made me wonder if it's the only game worth playing. What if we all tried to win the kindness game until it devolves into a life of love and laughter until joy happens, until we've quit playing games altogether. Want to take the kindness challenge? I dare you. All right, so that is the reading for this week. Um, I, I think it's a, obviously a, a quite a bit lighter note um, than what we've been discussing in the last couple weeks, secrets and mortality. Um, but I feel like it's just the right note to end these months of belonging. Um, this idea of, uh, of just sort of submitting all of our other priorities to the priority of kindness and watching what it does to expand our sense of belonging to include all people um, and to watch what it does to deepen um, and enrich our sense of belonging with the people we already belong to. So, um, so yeah, so the kindness challenge, I would love to hear your thoughts. And I'm specifically curious to hear uh, from you, are there objections that rise up in you? Um, to this idea? Are there, do you find a resistance? Do you say, oh, there's, this, this will be hard to do because of this? Are there particular things that you notice that will make the kindness challenge difficult? Um, hard to let go of this idea of winning and hard to, harder to embrace this idea of loving. I wonder, I wonder if there's anything that arises for you. Oliver writes, be love, be kind. Those are the words I send my three boys on to their day. I think the heart space of kindness cha changes all dynamics because sincere kindness can be felt more than any other thing we try to express love, not only for the person that receives the kindness, but in my case, it changed my whole relationship between my head and my heart, and that resulted in beautiful relationships. That is so well said, Ollie, and there are a couple of, of really important things in there. Um, so one thing that comes to mind is, um, actually is uh, Bob Goff's new book, G-O-F-F, -F, his new book, Everybody Always. Um, and I forget the subtitle, um, but the theme of the book is Becoming Love. How do we become love? Not how do we do love, but how do we become it? 
And I think this practice of kindness gets, you know, gets right at one of those ways. And it's what you're saying, Ali, is that as you practice kindness, not only is that, that act felt by the other person, but you become love. Your, your head and your heart get connected in a way and begin to work together towards one goal, which is kindness and love. Um, and I think the other thing I would say, I, uh, I forget where I was, but the, the thought, I think it was on vacation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on vacation because I noticed my increased capacity for kindness on vacation. And, um, and what occurred to me is that the, the biggest barrier to kindness is hurry. That kindness takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes patience. It takes slowing down. It takes paying attention. <laughs> um, and when I'm in a hurry, I don't have time to be kind. Um, and when you think about like the, you know, like the epidemic of road rage, which is the, sort of the opposite of kindness, I think that's what you're getting at. You're getting at everybody on the road is in a hurry. Everyone sees everybody else as a barrier to getting where they want to go. Um, and once you drain the hurry from our lives, um, I think you start to drain the unkindness too, and you create that space and that capacity for kindness. So, um, I love that about you, Ali, that you're, you're investing that sort of, um, that you're sort of shaping your life in a way that there's less hurry and more room for kindness is beautiful. Heather writes, kindness challenge for me is being kind to myself. If I'm kind to myself, it's easier to be kind to others, but current situations makes it truly difficult. Um, Heather, I don't think this conversation would have been complete without that, that important observation. I'm so glad you made it. That um, sort of the ceiling on our ability to be kind to, kind to others is, is our own ability to be kind to ourselves, that it starts there, that the practice field for kindness is within us. Um, and then the, and then the real game, you know, game time happens outside around us towards other people, but the practice field is within us. Um, and, and, and so we need to cultivate that ability to be kind to ourselves. If, if you're having a hard time being kind to others, go back to that practice. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's so, so important. I appreciate you saying that. And it reminds me, I think I shared song lyrics last week. I won't sing, share song lyrics today. Um, but one of my, I think our family's, one of our favorite songs from, I think it was two years ago was a song called Be Kind to Yourself by Andrew Peterson. It's a song written to his daughter. And I think she sings some of the um, harmony in it. Um, but a uh, beautiful song about like, let's start there. Um, you know, the, uh, I think there's the, there's the hint in the song, you know, that, that in, in, in the scripture of my faith, there's the command to be kind to your enemies. And, uh, that one of our greatest enemies is that self-critical voice within us. So one of the ways that we can actually, this is ironic, is practice kindness first and foremost is to be kind to that self-critical voice. Um, Oh, there you are again. Why are you treating me that way today? What's going on? Um, I, I deserve to be treated better. Um, <laughs> how can I be compassionate toward this self-critical part of myself? That is a, is an art that once we've mastered that, we the, the ability to be kind to every other critical voice in the world, um, every other hurtful thing, it just it increases exponentially. So Be Kind to Yourself by Andrew Peterson. It's a great song to start with. Cindy writes, we are all camping together. We can use a kindness challenge in this close-knit setting. Yep. Any setting, <laughs> any setting where discomfort increases a little bit, um, where stress is amped up a little bit, heat, 
is amped up a little bit. I mean, there's plenty of experiments, psychological experiments over time showing that all of those things increase irritability, anger, hostility, um, even small increases in those things. So camping actually, you know, camp is a great example of a place where um, if you're not being really intentional about kindness, things can get out of hand really quickly. And we, there's so many of those, isn't there? Um, so thanks for sharing that, Cindy. And yeah, um, the kindness challenge on, camp, on a camping trip, that could be beautiful. And, and Cindy adds, and I think I'll start by setting the example and see if it catches on. Um, give it a, give it an experiment. See if modeling it um, starts to spread. See if that kind of kindness goes viral. And, uh, and then if it doesn't, um, don't hesitate to say, hey, I got an idea. What if we just tried this? What if we gave it a go? Um, and uh, I, think, I think people have a, a basic desire to be kind. Um, they just need somebody to point them at it. And so that might be what needs to happen on the trip, Cindy. And if it does, go for it. Sonali writes, I have, I'm having trouble with kindness. I feel very self-protective of my space comfort, so I am not as kind as I would like to be to request needs of my family members. Important, so important, Sonali. I'm so glad you brought it up. Kindness doesn't mean not having boundaries, right? Um, one of the hardest places to practice kindness is in the setting of boundaries because usually we let our boundaries go, we let them go, we don't set them. And then the thing that drives us to set them is a, a exasperation, irritation, anger, a sense of being violated or invaded. And so to set those boundaries early with kindness um, is actually practicing kindness too. Um, it doesn't always mean um, uh, being present to even, uh, you know, in fact, as Heather said, it's maybe one of the first ways to practice kindness towards ourselves is to, to make sure we are getting the space that we need. So that'd be my encouragement to you is don't, don't give up on having boundaries. Just practice uh, setting them with kindness. All right. So in Sonali, I think that, that very practical question about how do you actually practice kindness, it, it makes me think of the more practical stuff. So let's take this to a more practical level now with the week 35 practice. Here it is. This is the week of the kindness dare. As these months of loving come to a close, our ideas about belonging have begun to expand. Now our practice of belonging will begin to expand as well. We've been practicing building pockets of belonging and giving and receiving love amongst those closest to us. But a love that doesn't love everyone is stunted. It harbors a selfishness that robs love of the power it naturally possesses. In other words, by practicing loving even the stranger, the love we give and receive amongst our closest friends and partners and spouses gets amplified and deepened and enriched. So this week, I challenge you to compete at kindness. You have no other focus for this week except to look for opportunities for kindness. Give your cards away, make your eye contact, say hello, bless a sneeze. Don't worry if you feel handicapped in your ability to do so. Your limitations in this regard make the gift of your kindness that much more valuable. Once you decide to play the game, you'll become aware that the opportunities for kindness are everywhere. This is the week of the kindness dare and also the conclusion to the months of loving. Of course, this does not mean loving stops here. It means you have built a foundation upon which you can truly live. In the months ahead, this true self you have revealed to your people will finally be resurrected in the way you live everything else as well. So this exercise, I, I do see sort of as going hand in hand with last week's exercise, that last week's exercise was about really just slowing us down, making us pay attention to what matters, getting us tuned in to um, the right priorities. And then this, this practice sort of builds on that and says, now insert kindness into that space. Um, what would it look like if we just ask that question constantly, what would it look like to be kind in this moment? And as Sonali pointed out, not just kind to other, kind to myself as well. 
And I think that's what we have to remember about kindness is that, um, that, uh, kindness is meant for all. Um, and, um, we don't want to do what is unhealthy for us in order to do what we think is kind for others. Um, what is kind for others is also kind for ourselves and we want to seek that kind of balance. So, um, let's, uh, let's be looking for those opportunities this week to practice kindness and, uh, curious to hear your thoughts about the practice. Sonali writes, ooh, setting boundaries with kindness and not out of exasperation. I like that. Thanks. Um, that is probably, um, I, I, I apologize to my wife once today for setting boundaries out of fatigue and exasperation rather than, um, out of kindness. <laughs> so yes, I think that that's a pretty fundamental practice. We're all needing, you're not alone, Sonali. <laughs> um, let's make sure that's part of our kindness practice this week as well. Sonali writes, thank you for today, Kelly. So much of today resonated with me about grief, about kindness. I feel lighter. Oh, that's beautiful. Also got some practice countering the voice in my head, which feels I am taking too much airtime. No way, Sonali. Yeah, good for you. Notice the voice, voice of shame. You're, you're too much, right? That's the, I'm not enough is the most common manifestation of shame, but I'm too much is a much more subtle form, right? I'm too much. I'm saying too much. Don't worry about it. Yeah, good job countering that voice and knowing that your your thoughts and, and contributions are worthy. Marie writes, just a thought, being centered is a requirement, for me at least, to a mindset of kindness. And conversely, being frazzled doesn't prevent me from being kind, I suppose, but it really prevents me from seeing the opportunities. I think it's a different way of saying something that's already been said. Well, it, it is a different way, but I'm not sure. I think it's also an original angle on that, Marie. Because um, I, I really like that, actually, that you're saying... No, my capacity for kindness is always there. Um, it's that when I'm hurried, when I'm frazzled, when I'm distracted, I'm not. I'm not seeing the opportunities. Um, they're 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 not something that I'm picking up on. And even opportunities to be kind, um, you know, we we might react to those rather than responding to them. You know, instant reaction. One, again, of being frazzled and hurried versus drawing upon that kindness that we could be capable of in that moment. So, no, I think that's really great. Thank you for adding that. Um, I really appreciate it. I, uh, my son and I are toying with the idea of, of writing a book together. It should be sort of fun. And uh, um, talking about, like, inspiration, you know, writing when you're inspired. And one of the things that we talked about is that um, your trust as a writer that you're always inspired. Um, and writing is about discovering the inspiration. <laughs> so you might write all day today and not discover it, but tomorrow you will or the next day. Um, and to trust that each of us has an instinct, a basic desire for kindness, that it's at the center of us, that that's what we discover when we discover our true self. Um, and trying to get present enough to, to, to discover the opportunities, right, that give us the opportunity to practice it. So I think it's a beautiful way of looking at it. All right, folks, we could talk forever <laughs> about belonging, I think, um, but we have to stop somewhere. So this is a wrap on these months of loving. Next week, we're going to dive into topics like passion and purpose and meaning. Um, we'll be talking about how to resurrect your true self so it can get up and walk out into the world and live the life you are here to live. It'll be week 36 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, Why Wanting is the Way to Truly Living. Until then, remember, you are lovable, and so is everyone else. So dare yourself to treat them as if they are. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. 
Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. You